Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Like Tommy said, um, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn Galleria. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, we're so glad that you're here. Um, like Tommy said, just want to reiterate, uh, the passing of the peace is something we do every Sunday, but we don't want it to just be five or 10 minutes, depending on how long it is, one day a week. This is something that we're seeking to live out together in the context of our neighborhood parishes, living life together. So um, please, if you're new here, we'd love to get in touch with you. Fill out a Connect card, drop it in the black box at the back. Um, we're, we're glad that you're here. We, know you're, we want you to know that you're welcome here. Um, I'm a church planting resident here, which means I'm a, a pastor in training. I'm preparing, God willing, uh, to, to start a new church in the Brazewood Place neighborhood of Houston. So directly southeast of here. I don't, anyway, some, I don't know what direction it is from right here, but southeast, that way, Barrett's pointing there. Um, yes, that way. Uh, and and uh, that, that'll happen, Lord willing, in the next year, uh, year or so. Uh, we'll, we'll move towards launching a new church. Um, and it's a joy and honor to be here learning to preach under Taylor and under uh, with you guys' patience as, as we build towards planting our church. Uh, we're halfway through 1 Corinthians 12. Um, we're picking up this, this morning with the second half of 1 Corinthians 12, as you heard Tommy read. And I wanna say this right as we kind of uh, jump in this morning, uh, uh, that Paul's, of course, talking about the spiritual gifts in particular, the, high, the higher gifts, which Paul talks about later on in our passage, earnestly desire these higher gifts, he says in verse 31. Um, and I want to admit out loud as I begin that this stuff is kind of new for me. Um, I've, it's been a couple of years now that I've been convinced from the Bible that these gifts, especially the higher gifts that Taylor talked about last week, uh, prophecy, word of knowledge, you know, tongues, miraculous healings, um, uh, like I, I've been convinced from the Bible that these things are still alive today. Um, uh, as, as, you know, in, in the face of the, the view that says some of these gifts ceased a couple thousand years ago when the Bible was closed. Uh, so I've come to be convinced of that, but, but this stuff is new. Actually walking in these gifts and seeing what they look like is something that's brand new for me. I want to say that up front. Um, I know for me, and, and possibly for many of you, you might be leaning away a little bit as we talk about these gifts in this way. Um, and I want you to know that's okay. Uh, I think you'll probably appreciate what Paul has to say this week and, and next week in these passages because what Paul does is he carefully wraps some helpful boundaries around these use of these gifts because they're being used like crazy in Corinth. Um, uh, but I want you to know that there's much stuff, this is true every week, but there's a lot of stuff that Taylor uh, and me this week, but Taylor, there's a lot of stuff in these passages that we won't hit, we won't have a chance to hit in our sermons. Um, if you want to know more about what people who are well, way more studied than, than certainly me and even Taylor uh, if you want to know what people think about this, we've compiled, Taylor meant to say this in this sermon, but he ran out of time last week. Uh, at the back, there's books that Taylor has curated for you guys. He's chosen a series of books um, to place on the table. They're available for sale. Um, they're about living as a church uh, in practicing these gifts. Um, uh, and, and we want to put them in your hands. In fact, we're taking, the church is taking, we're, we're taking a hit of a couple dollars each book because we believe in them. We want them, we're selling them cheaper than we're buying them for so that you can get them in your hands and read them. Uh, and if we run out of any of those books today, we don't have a, a lot of copies, then feel free to shoot me an email, paul at sojourngalleria.org. I'd uh, be happy to, to order another one with your name on it for next week. Um, but but, but I, I don't say that to say, if you have questions, go read a book. Um, that's a resource for you, but Taylor's also, and for what it's worth, I'm available uh, to talk with you if you wanna talk through any of these things, chat about their implications, if you have concerns. We're, we're available to talk. We encourage you to talk with people in your parishes, to be in prayer. Um, you and I uh, uh, have probably both heard a number of stories where these 
manifestations of the gifts have gone awry in the context of churches and have divided churches one from another. That's not our hope here. The churches are given for the unity of the body and, and, our, and we want to pray. Satan would love nothing more than to see this part of 1 Corinthians, this series, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which we've been looking forward to so much, uh, albeit with some trepidation. Satan would love nothing more than for these chapters to divide our church, to separate us one from another. Um, God's plan for this is for us to be brought more closely together. And so my encouragement as we begin to y'all, grab a book, read, think, talk to each other, talk to your parish leaders, reach out to Taylor. Um, we're happy. We, we want to be in prayer together that God uses this part of the series to build us together as we seek to be faithful to his word in how we walk out uh, the exercise of these gifts. So I just wanted to say that up front that this, this is new for me. Up until a couple of weeks ago, I don't think, I think it's true to say uh, there's a conference that Taylor and Justin and I went to a couple weeks ago that you might have heard us refer to. Taylor referred to it last week in his sermon. There's a conference we went to that was designed, it wasn't a bunch of keynote speakers in main sessions. It was really an equipping conference with a bunch of breakouts. There was this church in Oklahoma City teaching churches, you know, this is what gifts like this can look like in the context of your church. And that was a couple weeks ago that I went. And to be honest, that's I think the first time I've been in a room where I've truly believed and, and witnessed what I believe to be authentic practices of these gifts. And so... You might be leaning away, just like me, um, a little bit, but let's lean in together and see what the Lord might do as we walk through this. Um, it's a lot more than I was planning on saying about that, uh, but let me begin with my sermon. I want to start with a story um, you might know, you might be familiar about, uh, with, with a, a pastor named Francis Chan. He's a well-known speaker. Uh, he pastors uh, in California, and he planted a church a number of years ago in Southern California out of his house. Um, and he's an incredibly gifted communicator. One of the, he's, he's been invited over the past uh, probably 15, 20 years to speak at conferences all over the place. I've heard him speak a couple of times. He's an incredibly gifted communicator. And he planted this church about 20 years ago, I think, uh, in Southern California, uh, out of his home. And quickly it grew to a church of about 5,000 people. It was a mega church. Um, and you might be familiar with this story, but a few years ago, uh, Francis Chan was preaching through 1 Corinthians and he came to chapter 12. He came to the passage that we're in today, where the Apostle Paul writes about this church that is many members but one body, and each member is indispensable to the functioning of the church. And he came to this passage, and he was preaching through it, and it kind of wrecked him, the way that he tells the story. It wound up to, to fast forward a couple of years after he did that, after he preached through it and he was wrestling with it, it led him to actually leave his megachurch, to, to, to hand it over to other leaders and start, I think in 2013, he started this church planting movement, again out of his home, uh, of house churches seeking to multiply, to raise up leaders, to live in the sense of the, uh, in, in these gifts. And the reason he did that is because he became, in his words, kind of frustrated biblically. He said, we're in, a, we're in a church, this is a huge church, and this is, you know, by everyone's estimation, he was being invited to, he was asked to write books, he was invited to conferences, he was winning at pastoral ministry, right? Um, but he said, every one of these people in this church has a supernatural gift that is meant to be used for the body. And every week, everyone shows up to hear my gift. There's 5,000 miraculously gifted people in this church, and our church is entirely organized around one person's gift. And it wrecked him. Um, and, uh, and so as a result, he, he went off and, and, uh, and, and did this church planting movement. And by God's grace, we don't have 
the challenge of having 5,000 people that were developing, you know, this unhealthy culture of one person, you know, and 5,000, you know, that's, that's not the problem we're facing. But right now at, our, at this stage in our church, I think it's incredibly important that we're talking about this. Because when you think about it, I'm sure you can picture... Uh, if not from experience, at least in your imagination, what it's like to be a part of a group where not everyone's valued, right? Not everyone, uh, there's people in the group where there's the haves, there's people who are the have-nots, groups in which some are highly valued for the function they serve, the work they perform, others um, are just kind of there taking up space. Uh, Sometimes this can be an explicit and antagonistic divide, right? Like when kids get bullied and they ostracize certain kids for not being cool, or when a government, if you're talking about a societal level, writes laws that subjugate a certain part of society. So sometimes it's antagonistic and these divisions are explicit and intentional, but oftentimes it's not antagonistic. These kinds of divisions just develop, bad, de- develop out of bad habits that teams have of interacting with one another based on the makeup of that group. And the group starts to rely too heavily on a small subset of people within that group. Think of the project scenario from you know, high school or college. You have a group project um, and all the work winds up getting done by one or two people uh, and everyone else just kind of falls in line as the one or two strong personalities take the lead. Um, and that almost always, of course, results in resentment. Right? The two people, one or two people who do all the work think that no one else is doing their part. The people who aren't doing their part are resenting the leaders because they're like, well, you didn't give us anything to do. And it just results in kind of a broken group dynamic. When I was in high school, I played soccer, um, and, and one year in particular, we had a great soccer team. I, I had no business being on a soccer team. Um, only in high school, where you're kind of required to be there, as someone like me on a team with some of these players. It was just incredible. Um, and uh, one year, my junior year in particular, we had an incredible team. We were supposed to win state. We, were, we went in, I think, ranked number one in the state in our division. And we had two, we had, uh, it, was, it was a team, half of our team was North African refugees from Somalia, Ethiopia, a couple of Ghanans. Uh, but we, I mean, it was, a, it was a really fun team to play on. Um, there were two players in particular, a forward named Adam Jimeno. He was a Japanese-American guy, and he was just like, he was an all-star. He, you could pass him the ball. You don't have to understand soccer to understand what I'm talking about. You pass him the ball, he played forward, and he would take it and score in the goal. Like, that would happen most of the time. Um, and then we had this second guy who played center back, a guy named Abdefada Hassan. He was a Somalian refugee, uh, kind of a slight frame, but he was an outstanding defender. You don't need to understand soccer. People couldn't get the ball by him, right? If you dribbled against him, no one in practice, I think the entire, like, the entire time could ever get past him unless he let you. He was just outstanding. Um, and they both got scattered by colleges. In fact, Adam, the forward, Adam Jimeno, this is, anyway, uh, he, he got scattered by a school called St. John's, which is one of the best soccer teams in the country, Division I soccer. And as a freshman in college, he scored the game-winning goal in the national championship. That's the kid. I, I went to high school with that kid. So I was obviously very good at soccer. But, uh, but, but the reason I tell this story is because um, we were undefeated for most of that season. But then we got to this game, of course. Um, we played, we, we were up against this school uh, of a bunch of, it wasn't a very, like none of the players on that team were very good. They didn't have any all-stars. They were actually, they were a bunch of rich white kids from the suburbs in Atlanta. There's a, a school called Woodward. Um, if you know anything about Atlanta. Uh, we went to play against them. They were a good team. They did pretty well that season. I think they had like a mixed record. Uh, but we went to play against them. And by this point in the, te- in the season, we had developed, of course, as a team, we had this, these outstanding players, but we had Adam and we had Abdefada. And we had developed habits of, if you want to score, get it to Adam. If all else fails in the midfield, at least Abdefada is not going to let any goals get scored. And we came to play Woodward, 
which wasn't a team of a bunch of super gifted players, but they played as a team, and they beat us soundly. I think it was like four or five zero. They put three stocky white dudes on Adam to defend, to make sure he couldn't get the ball and score. And then they didn't, they didn't dribble up to the goal and score. They, they scored on set pieces. That's the one thing if you don't know soccer. They basically were free kicks, fouls, and corners that they scored off of. It was like four or five zero. It was humiliating. And as you can imagine, the locker room after the game wasn't an encouraging, guys, we played as best we could. It was angry and bitter. We were pointing fingers at each other because this dynamic had developed that was really unhealthy as a team. We were just relying on these two all-stars rather than functioning properly as a team. You see, groups in which not everyone is valued are divided groups. Some, sometimes there's a felt explicit division, right? Like to, to hit that again, between those who have power and those who don't. Those, uh, those people who are in power start to look down on those who don't have power. Those who don't have power, those who aren't the best, start to resent the people who are in power or authority. Other times, even when it's, there's a peaceful sense, even though it's, it's, it's implicit, this division, there begins to be this experienced, this real felt division between those who are the visibly gifted ones and those who are not. Rather than feeling like a valuable part of the team, individuals begin to feel isolated and lonely, wondering whether they should even be in the room anymore. And that might resonate with some of you. I think loneliness is rampant in today's world. And I think that a key part of that, um, uh, the key part of the reason for that as a culture is that we don't do a very good job of valuing people, of valuing everyone. And this is true even in the Christian world. Every now and then I'll listen. I'm a worship leader here. I do the music most Sundays. Um, and so I do my research. I listen to the top Christian charts to listen to what people are listening to. And that's, this past week I was doing that again. And the, one of the main themes of a number of these top 40 Christian songs that I listened to uh, was being relieved of my fears. That was a theme that was through and through, song after song. This theme of being relieved from fear. And the, and the fear is a fear of being not good enough, fear of being rejected, fear of not being worthy. You might know the song No Longer Slaves by Jonathan David Helzer. There it is. Um, uh, it's a great song. It's about being no longer, no longer being a slave to fear. We've sung it before here. Um, and the antidote for this fear is described beautifully in the song as having a loving, intimate father who wraps his arms around you and tells you that you belong in his family. The antidote is the antidote to loneliness. You belong. Another song, Fear is a Liar. Zach Hicks, I think is the guy's name. Fear is a Liar. It's a great song. It's all about how we need to stop believing lies about not being strong enough, not being good enough, not being worthy enough. These are lies that we are believing. Another, the, the last example I'll give, the number one song on the charts this week is a new song by Lauren Daigle called You Say. You might have heard it. Um, I think it was posted last week. It already has like 10 million views or something. On YouTube, the opening line of that song is, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. The chorus is a litany of statements. You, God, you say that I'm loved. You say that I'm strong. You say that I'm held. When I don't belong, oh, you say that I'm yours. It's about belonging. And, the re and, and, and these are great songs. Uh, and, and while these songs are good to share with people who don't know the love of God, it's Christians who are singing them. It's Christians who are singing these songs, who are loving these songs, who are requesting that these songs be played in their churches because this is hitting a chord in the Christian world today. We're struggling with loneliness and the fear of being rejected, the fear of not being good enough. 
of not being valuable. And again, I think that while this isn't an exhaustive explanation for the reason for that, it's very complicated. Um, I think that one key reason for this is that we struggle as Christians to value one another. I may have given this example before, but thinking about how we often think about the mission of God in the United States. If you're really sold out for the mission of God, what do you do? You go overseas to become a missionary. If you're not quite there, but you're still pretty good, what do you do? You become a local pastor. If you're not quite there, you serve in nonprofits or some underpaid service industry like teaching or or social work. And for everyone else, there's always the business world. Right? You might, you know, laugh. Um, You might not use those four specific buckets, but I think that that's really a common way of understanding things in our Christian culture. A lot of us probably wind up thinking about ourselves along those lines and think about our worth in the mission of God in line with which of those buckets we fall within. It's unsurprising, therefore, that there are so many people in our churches battling senses, the sense that they are not worthy of being a part there. They're not actually that valuable. So many people being divided, thinking, I don't really belong here, leading to loneliness. You see, for Paul, in many ways, that's exactly the thing that God gave the spiritual gifts to the church for in order to combat. Into a world filled with loneliness and division, God sent his spirit to bind people together as one with him, and one with one another. Baptized into one body, Paul says in verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. And God, God's design was to give gifts to each member so that it's clear that each member in the church is valuable to the mission of God in their local context. In other words, God has given these spiritual gifts to his church in order to build up the church in love and unity. That might be enough in and of itself for us to want these things, would it not? As Paul says, we should eagerly desire these gifts. Verse 31. The problem is in Corinth, who Paul is writing this letter to, even where apparently they're practicing these higher gifts like crazy, that's the problem. They're practicing them like crazy rather than in order. And as a result, they're sowing division. Factions have developed in the Christian church. There are these hyper-charismatics, people who are you know, speaking in tongues, who are speaking words of prophecy, going nuts with these gifts. And there's people on the other side who are seeing the damage it's causing and saying, let's get these gifts out of here. Let's kick these folks out of the church. We want nothing to do with these gifts. There's people all across the spectrum trying to figure out where do I belong in this mess, right? And what Paul does for them is essentially zoom them out to point out the absurdity of their experience. Christ died to tear down the dividing walls of hostility between people in the church, right? Did he then turn around and send the promised Holy Spirit in order to redivide them? Absolutely not. So as Paul turns to the spiritual gifts, right? As, uh, uh, as Paul knows Uh, As he turns to the spiritual gifts, because of the situation he knows he's writing into in Corinth, he doesn't go right into talking about them specifically. Last week, Taylor introduced them, um, as Paul introduced them, but then rather than immediately going through and listening through and saying, and Paul saying, okay, here's how you're supposed to do this, here's what prophecy is, here's what all this stuff, he pauses and speaks clear words of correction and really compassion to this Corinthian church saying, guys, you're missing the point of these gifts. We gotta hit first principles first before we get to these gifts. And while Paul wrote these words to, a, to an original audience that very much needed them, I think that even today in our, in our really divided and struggling culture, struggling with the idea of value and where we fit in the context of God's people, we need these words of Paul as well. And so how does Paul address this? Right, he really does one thing in this whole passage. He gives a powerful metaphor. We are the body of Christ. This is, where that, this is the primary place in the, in the uh, 
uh, in the scriptures where we get that reference, the understanding of the church as a body, the body of Christ. Uh, He says, we have many members, but one body. Verse 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, the many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Pause there. Paul says, listen, church, this is God's intent for his church. This is what Christ died in order to do. He died in order to tear down the walls that served as divisions between people and sent the spirit to baptize us all, bring us all together into one body. Baptism, the Greek word for baptism is the same word as the word for capsize, for a ship to capsize. In baptism language, there's this idea that the old order has been totally turned upside down. You had the, the old way of division and dividing walls between people has been torn down, has been killed, died, put in the grave with Christ, and this new life has come up, not just a bunch of individuals continuing to live in division, but a bunch of individuals who have been made one with God, and really one with God through their being made one with one another. We're all different, in other words, Paul says. We're all coming from different places. Here he gives the examples, right? Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul extends that list. He says, some are Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, Greek, barbarian. He, he gives these, all these examples of divisions that used to exist. And Paul says, by the miracle of God uniting us to himself, the baptism of the spirit, we all drink from one spirit and we together make up the body of Christ just as God designed it. And what, does Paul go, what he goes on to say is that in uniting us to Christ, in making us one, God doesn't erase the diversity that exists within the people of God. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Right? In fact, when God brings us together, the beauty of the miracle of God is that he didn't stripe, strip down everything that made us different from one another. He sanctified it. He made us into this beautiful patchwork quilt that testifies to his love, his creativity, the beauty of his varied and, and, and beautiful creation. Right? We know that a painting of single color, I guess we've been to modern museums. If you've been to a modern museum, they do have entire canvases that are a single color. I don't get it. But you go, to, you, you go to see like the impressionistic age, the way they use colors, the way they work them together into this beautiful final picture, all kinds of different things. It's, it's fascinating. And that's what God's design was in the miracle of baptizing us together in one spirit, into one body. Look at verse 14. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. Let me keep reading. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you're not just one member, right? you're many. And God has arranged these things. He goes on to say in verse 18 uh, and a couple other places, God has arranged these things just as he wished. The first group of people that Paul turns to right here um, is those who don't see themselves as an integral part of the body. He looks right at them. People who think, because I don't have this gift, I must not belong. Because I don't look like that person who's on stage, I must have nothing to do here. Nonsense, says Paul, and this is key. I mean, to give a, more, a little bit more context, you probably know this about Corinthian culture, ancient Rome. This is true of every culture. There were things that were in, in that culture. Persuasive, excellent speech, right? If you had money, if you, were, if you were wealthy, if you were powerful, if you had a good pedigree, if you were born into the right family, if you were a beautiful person, good-looking person, if you were strong, 
that was in, in that culture. And the laws in ancient Rome protected the strong and neglected the weak. There's a whole society that was organized based on these structures within society. Some are better than others. The better ones get all the rewards. The worst ones just die eventually. That was essentially the culture back then. And this culture was slipping into the church. Right, strong people were elevated. The weak were getting ignored. This church was not looking like the church Christ died in order to create. And if you think about how countercultural these words were for Paul to write into this culture, Paul was talking to the less presentable parts of the body as he goes on to refer to them. He's talking to the, those who think they don't belong here and saying to them, in the hearing of the strong ones, in the hearing of all those who knew that they were supposed to be there, he was saying, you belong here too. It must have been greatly encouraging for these weak brothers and sisters, these less presentable brothers and sisters. And it would have been a word of rebuke for the strong who are simply functioning in what made them comfortable without trying to welcome in and emphasize the importance of every part of the body of Christ. Don't let anyone, brothers and sisters, tell you that you don't belong. Whether explicitly or whether a lie comes into your mind that you begin to believe that because you're not in such a way or you don't have this gift that you don't belong here. What is it for us? Um, what is it for us in our church? The lies that we begin to believe. It could be real estate. I'm not in real estate. I think like all of our leaders are in real estate. And I know that's a silly example to give, but maybe I, maybe I need to be in real estate. How about this? Owning a house. I don't own a house. Therefore, I can't be as hospitable. I'm not as valuable to the body. Really, when I buy a house, that's when I'm really gonna be bought into the mission and be effective for God's kingdom. What else is it? You're not married you don't have a spouse yet. You don't have kids. You don't know how to teach. You can't argue with the best of us. You don't feel as comfortable as other people in social situations. You're prone to anxiety. These are things that Satan will grab and hold onto and keep you focused on and convince you. Because of that, you're not really as important as those other people. Right? You don't really have as valuable a role in this church because you don't have kids yet. You, they, wait, wait till you have kids. Then you'll understand. Right? Don't believe those lies. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul's starting to sound repetitive. You see what he's doing here. He's saying, we need different kinds of people. Right? I was just talking about this. We need different kinds of people. Diversity in the body doesn't point to exclusion. Difference, because you're different from me doesn't mean you should have nothing to do with me. In fact, diversity points to the beautiful inclusion of Christ for all into his body, especially given the fact that we're different from one another. And this is all by the design of God, Paul says, right? And if you think about the nature of God, it says early in the Bible, and it's, and it's revisited a couple of times uh, throughout the, the story of the Bible, it says we were made in God's image. Think about the character of God. God is three in one. God is the perfect blend of unity, God is one, and diversity. He is three. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made in God's image, and one way that we display the image of God in the world is by being perfectly, paradoxically, but perfectly one, even as God is one, amidst our diversity. So diversity is beautiful. And you don't need to be a Christian to know this. Everyone's talking about this today. Diversity's in right now as a conversation. But what is the purpose of diversity? If what we believe is that diversity is meant to testify to the heart, the love, the beauty of God. Diversity itself 
is not the end goal. Right? You can get 100 people who are all from different places, all from different backgrounds, different colors, different everythings, different stripes. Um, you can get all of those 100 people in the same room, and you're, not, you're still not halfway there to what God created diversity for. You, you've done step one. But now we need to do the patient work. The challenge is getting all those different people on the same page with one another, living out true love for one another. And this is what Paul is saying that Christ has welcomed us into. Christ had to die in order to make us one. He had to die to baptize us by his one spirit into this one body, his own body. You see, Humanity, for the course of human history, what's happening today is nothing new. Over the course of human history, humanity has tried to make diversity look good. We know know that we should be together with people who are different from us. This is not new today that we've discovered that we've never known before. But all of humanity has been tugging, dividing, pulling, because at our deepest root, we are unable to not insist on our own way. We We are born with the drive to insist on our own way and preserve our own preferences, build up our own kingdoms. Um, and as a result, diversity only goes so far. Think about the cheap, the, the easiest example is politics, right? We, we love diversity up until a certain point. You can think whatever you want to think. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life except for in this one area. <laughs> and then we start to realize there's, we're not actually okay with other people being different from us because in our flesh, we want to constantly insist that my kingdom is preserved. And this is the miracle of salvation. This is the miracle of baptism into Christ. True unity in the midst of diversity is possible. And it has been made possible by Jesus Christ. Now, unbelievably, but truly, verse 20, many, there are many parts, yet there is one body. You are one as the church. And as a result, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. I'll stop there. 21 through 24. There's something to acknowledge here. According to the Apostle Paul, as I've said, we are unified, but we are not uniform. What this means, though, is that there are some parts of the body that need more lifting than others. There are stronger people who have been given gifts to strengthen the weaker. There are more publicly gifted people who have been given the opportunity to raise up those who are not as publicly, as limelightedly, to make up a word, gifted. And this is potentially controversial, but it must be said, because I think it's what Paul is saying. Relationships within the body are not necessarily an equal two-way street. And it's simple to illustrate. Think of a family, parents and children, a nuclear family. No father would resent his daughter for not giving him as much as he gives to her. Right? Money is an easy example. Uh, how much has my daughter given to me? Have either of my daughters, for that matter, given to me? Approximately zero dollars and zero cents. How much money have I given to her, to them? I counted I'm just kidding, I didn't. Uh, A lot more than zero dollars and zero cents, right? Do I resent my daughters for it? No. God has gifted me to be their father, has organized our family just so. And one of the things I get to do is lift up my daughters 
not just with my, my wallet, but with every fiber of my being. I pray for them a lot more than they pray for me. Right, Tallulah, our, our daughter who can talk, um, sometimes does pray for me when I put those words in her mouth. Tallulah, say, thank you, God, for daddy. Okay, great, so she prays for me. She, she prays Thanksgiving for me, right? <laughs> but you see my point, right? I've been, our family has been so ordered that, that I have been given a position unlike hers. And I need to go out of my way to let her know, especially as she starts to ask these kinds of questions. I've, as a father, I have to commit my life to de- devoting my life to honoring her and making her know that she doesn't need to do anything to please me. She doesn't do anything to justify her, her position as family. You're old enough till you start performing, I'm gonna start withdrawing my love. That would be silly within a family. Well, Paul's saying we can't do that within the body of Christ. That same reality is true. There are some who are higher than others. There are some who are more able, some who are more gifted in these ways as opposed to this way. Some who are in a stronger and weaker place in their lives, which Paul talks about earlier in the book but we've all been given one another and all of us are indispensable to the functioning of the family of God. For me personally, every time I get up to preach, so long as I totally, you know, don't totally blow it, I get encouragement and thanksgiving. Right? Whenever I lead worship, I get encouragement and thanksgiving and I appreciate all of that. Um, I don't want that to stop for me, for Taylor, for anyone else who's, who's in a visible place of leadership in our church. But what Paul's saying in this passage, in this section of the letter is that each of you, has been given a miraculous spiritual gift and each of you needs to be shown honor and love and acceptance and to be shown explicitly. We need to show greater honor to those that are less limelighted so that they know even more deeply how important they are to the mission of God in the church. You know, you give one example, the gift of service, right? The gift of, and I'm, this isn't, I'm not just talking about so being someone who likes to help people, while that's certainly included. The gift of service is a miraculous spiritual gift, according to the Apostle Paul. When you seek to, to step in and meet needs, for some reason, by a miracle of God, sometimes those things happen at just the right time, in just the right way, in just the right measure for people and for needs in our church. That is God miraculously gifting people within our church with the gift of service. Do we get up every, does that person get up every Sunday and talk and tell that story? No, we need to do, we need to go out of our way to lift that up, to notice that in our parishes, right? With brothers and sisters who we love and say, I see this in you. And I just want you to, I want to honor you so that we can all celebrate what God has given our church through you, right? We need to go out of our way to do this. And this is God's design, right? Think about the model that Christ has given us. What did Jesus say? He said, so the last will be first, the first last. If anything, Service and serving one another, even though it's not the most public gift, is one that comes up time and time again in Jesus' ministry as something that he says, that is what my kingdom looks like. Jesus himself modeled what Paul is telling us to do here. Verse 25, but God has so composed the body, right? This is all by the design of God, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let me say a few things about these two verses. First, Paul in these two verses reiterates with crystal clarity the fact that every part of the body is indispensable for the sake of the whole body. He says that over and over again. He says it again here. Second thing, he reiterates again the fact that it is God who has composed the body this way. Do not for a moment, Paul says, think that this was an accident. 
Don't resent the fact that you don't have someone else's gift. Don't think that it was a mistake, that it's something that you just neglected to do last week is the reason you don't have that gift today. No, God has so organized things so that our body is perfectly one and perfectly in the organization that God has designed us for right now, right? This is all by God's design. And third, the point that Paul is driving at, uh, I think is in verse 25. Why, why did God compose the body with such beautiful complementary diversity. Why did God do this? Paul says it. Paul says, so that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member honors, is honored, all rejoice together. And this is beautiful. Guys, think about it. God designed the body to care for one another. And it's important that we do this with everyone. The gifted teacher, the gifted giver, the gifted servant, the gifted counselor, all are worthy of honor and all receive the same care, verse 25, from the rest of the body. If one is suffering, all in the body come alongside and suffer with him or her. If one of our pastor's homes burns down, as a church, we up and go and care for that family in their time of need. If the newest member of our church has a house that burns down, then all of us as a church up and go serve. We provide the same love, same care for the two, despite their differences. If one is honored, we come alongside him or her with joy, right? celebrating the fact that God has loved our church through that person. Think about a family with several children. Right? One kid is into football, one kid is into building Lego structures, and another kid is into art. Does the whole family go to the football games but neglect to celebrate the incredible Lego structure that was just created in our living room? Does the whole family go to the football games and cheer on that kid, but then say, oh, we don't really know much about art, so go to your little art shows and and maybe we'll hang one or two things in the wall? Absolutely not. It might, and listen, it might require that we do some learning. We might not be interested, as as parents, we might not be interested in Legos, but by golly, if our kids are into Legos, we're gonna learn about Legos and celebrate Legos with them. Art, you might not know anything about art, You might never have heard the word impressionist um, as as it refers to art. But if you have a kid who's into art, you're going to learn so that you can celebrate and rejoice with that kid. Families do this. We know that we should do this. Why could this, how could this not be the case within our church? To move on, after saying these things, giving these qualifications, Paul finishes this section with one of the meatiest passages in the Bible. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it, so I apologize. There's books in the back that talk a lot more about this passage. Verses 27 through 31. Let me read. Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Just a few things here. Think about what Paul's been talking about this whole time. Paul says the whole body matters. Everything, even those things that are apparently unpresentable, are given even greater honor so that there may be no division in the body. Then, having said that, Paul moves on to say that the unified body of Christ has a functional order. God designed the body by his will and part of his appointment of each member in the body is the appointment to a particular function or role. So while it might be more desirable to be a hand 
because you get to manipulate things and, you know, you get to move things, you fight with your hands, you, do, you write, all kinds of things with your hands. The foot's like, I don't get to do any of that. All I do is carry the body around. This, you might, they might have thought that before soccer was invented, but you get the point, right? You might want to be part, but God has so ordained the body, giving it a functional order in every part is essential. And so Paul gives this ranking though. He says, he acknowledges, he says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, so forth. What is Paul doing? Is he saying that some are more important than others? He can't be saying that, right? Based on what he's just said. He can't be saying that some are more important than others. No, I think what he's doing is actually brilliant. Paul says, on the one hand, that there is to be no division, right? That, that every part is essential. On the other hand, he says, there's an order in which things are to be understood, a leadership structure. There are some gifts that are more visible than others, and those are needed. There are some gifts that in themselves are an honor to receive and to practice. Right, so he's acknowledging that. But then think about what he said earlier. He said, the less presentable parts receive greater honor. There's another greater that Paul uses. Why would this be the case? In part, I think God knows that the temptation within the body of Christ to envy is great. We oftentimes live our lives comparing ourselves to one another. But that's not something, our propensity to comparison is not something that God's going to allow to frustrate his plan for the body. Paul urges us, God urges us through Paul to take care and go out of our way to honor those with the gifts that aren't considered the greater gifts so that they too are able to see how indispensable they are to the function of the body, even as these greater gifts are being practiced. And we know this to be true in experience. Right? Why is it that the authors of books, if you look at the thank you, which most people skip to chapter one, but if you look at the acknowledgements, why is it that the authors always thank their families? Almost always. My wife, long-suffering, my kids, da-da-da, they thank them because they realize that they're essential to the process of pulling together that book. Why is it that high-performing exec- executives that companies tend to think there is assistance, the teams of people who work under them. Why is it that the, the, the most valuable player in, in pretty much every athletics, you know, every sport, when the MVP receives the award, why is it they immediately start thanking their teammates? Because they know that without these others, their performance would have been nothing. It can be contrived, sure, we'll say that. You know, you can, you can be prideful and still say, oh yeah, I couldn't have done it without all these people. But that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about, of course. This is real unity, real honor that we're giving to people who this, this, this whole thing would sink without each part of this body, right? What is a preacher if there's no congregation to receive and to actually apply the words that are being spoken in the context of pushing back the darkness, right? Pushing forward the cause of the kingdom of God. Paul says, to close out this passage, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, Some people believe that when you're saved, you're given all the gifts that you're ever gonna have, right? When you're saved, you're given everything and there's nothing else to be had after that point of salvation. And according to what Paul says, I think we're, we're kind of bound to conclude that that isn't true. Paul says, earnestly desire in a way that hints that we should be seeking things that are not in our possession yet, right? And to give a corrective, this doesn't necessitate that every single person must manifest each of these gifts, that's not true. It can't be true, All right, Based on what Paul has said up to this point. Furthermore, look at in verses 29 and 30, Paul asks a series of, of rhetorical questions. And the answer to those questions, Paul leads us to the answer being no, not everyone. 
is a prophet, an apostle, a teacher, a miracle worker. God is pleased to give all of those gifts to the body, but not, not only one person. No one person has all of those gifts. What this means is that this earnest desire that Paul is commanding us to have can be met by God within the community. Right? There, there are gifts that we have, we have not yet experienced in our church that we will experience by God's grace through particular individuals through whom God chooses to minister to our church. Does that mean that, uh, so, so the question is, what happens when someone is given a gift like this? Does that mean that his or her desire has been realized, but the rest of us have been left wanting? No. Verse 26, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one person in our church receives a gift of prophecy, that is a gift for the whole church. If one person receives a gift of healing, is, is able to, to pray with faith and see someone get healed miraculously, that is a gift for the entire church. That's not, Paul's saying, no, the, the point is not for you to sit back and, and think that you're gonna get all these things and whatever you haven't gotten, you should be discontent about that. Paul says, earnestly desire these things so that when we watch as God builds us together, we get to celebrate with one another. For some of us, verse 31, will correct our view of the gifts. Paul says, with absolute clarity, earnestly desire these gifts. And many of us have not lived lives, myself included, that could fairly be characterized as lives of earnest desire for these higher gifts. We have all kinds of reasons for why that's not the case. Right? Maybe we haven't experienced it. Maybe we've seen these gifts abused. Maybe we've come to believe in a theological perspective that doesn't leave room for them. But this, those things all go to show how important, it is for us, uh, how important it is for us to base our understanding of the nature of God and how he works within the church on the word of God rather than our experience. So if we need to, let's let God's word correct our view of these gifts. Paul commands us in no, no ambiguous terms to earnestly, earnestly desire these gifts. And if you compare it to evangelism, think about it. We earnestly desire that people who don't know Jesus yet would come to know Jesus. What does that look like in our lives? Does that look like sitting on our couches and waiting, for, waiting to be asked about the kingdom of God? Sometimes it can feel like that. But no, we know the clear picture of that earnest desire to see people get saved is to charge out as harvesters in the field. The field is ripe. We need to go to them, tell them about Jesus. Similarly, with earnest desire here, does it mean that we just sit and say, we're open to it, but we're not really gonna make much room for it? No, it means we, we, Paul's encouraging us to make room for this in our lives, to ask God, make room in our prayers for him to speak, to make room in our communities for him to perform these miraculous works within our midst. Make, it, it takes time, it takes practice. We're not gonna be perfect with it, but, but, but Paul's saying, make room for it, earnestly desire. Don't just be open to it, desire these gifts. The goal is not to look back and conclude, I'm a failure. <laughs> the goal is not to look back and say, man, I've totally missed it, therefore I don't belong. To think that would be to miss God's point. And, and Satan would love for any one of us in this room to be thinking that right now. The call for God, for all of us, is to earnestly desire these gifts and see, and see as God works in us, right? As God weaves us together as we pursue these gifts, what God might do out of, out of love for his church. Like I said, this is new for us. This is new for me. It's probably new for many of you. Um, but let's see what God might do 
as we make room for him in our communities, in our relationships, in our prayers, in our relationship with him, and watch as he builds the body together in love. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, for making us one, for telling us that even when we don't feel like we're one, even though we, don't, we might not feel like we belong in the body of Christ, you tell us that, that we belong. You know, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Lord, we know that union with you, union with your church, doesn't require a single manifestation of any of these higher gifts. Union with you is accessible to us by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That miracle by which we are raised from death to life simply by your grace because of your love for us. And so God, as we pursue these gifts together, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here um, that you would show us your love that you would draw us into your love, wrap your arms around us, draw us into greater and greater intimacy with you because these gifts, we see stories in the New Testament of these gifts being exercised like crazy by people who didn't know you. We want to be people who know you, people who know your love, who know the union that you purchased for us. And we wanna watch as you miraculously, through no good of our own, no strategy of our own, build us together using these gifts all for your glory, for the good of others, for our good. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.